I've had the most extraordinary theatrical week, I must say. Some weeks you see things that you think, ooh, that's quite good. You have a nice time. And then some weeks you see things that you think, wow, knock your socks off. Yeah, yeah. And I went back to see Jerusalem, which I last saw 13 years ago. I did see it three times 13 years ago. What was it, 2009? Wow, that's a big gap. Huge gap. And it had always been one of my favourite plays. I'd always thought it was one of the great plays of this century so far. I mean, obviously, there are lots of great plays to come. And going back to it, I liked it even better because it's got a bit more melancholy. And you get this extraordinary thing with um, Mark Rylance, who plays this kind of misfit called Johnny Rooster Byron, who's at the centre of it all because it's really about Englishness and loss I think it's about sadness it's got great sad undercurrent and because he's older and he's playing opposite Mackenzie Crook who is his kind of hanger on not really a mate and because Mackenzie Crook is all that much older there's kind of this astonishing undertow of kind of anger really and sadness and misery and and it's just so good it's so funny it's so clever and it um, encompasses so many things so that was my great night at the theatre this week and you couldn't come sadly I know I'm no I'm sorry I did see it in 2009 with them both in it I mean Mackenzie's such an interesting guy I had the uh, joy of working with him on the recruiting officer years ago at the Donmar and he has such a love of the countryside and I think you know at the point at which he had real success and people were saying well are you going to buy a house or are you going to buy something extraordinary the um show of your wealth and success he actually bought a piece of woodland right and he loved he has a real love affair with the countryside and with woodland which is of course where his writing words or gummage came from and the detectorists and I all didn't this stuff. Know yeah that yeah he so, had, yeah. he's a great sort of champion champion yeah. of um all things rural yeah. really and he's such i think he's such an underrated actor i mean obviously um Rylance is the star turn and yeah you know he's he's why so everybody wants to go and see it and it is one of the great defining performances i think of our time and people who are lucky enough to see it will talk about it yeah um, which is kind of what the play is about in a way about people talking about things in years to come building legends and but but it wouldn't be the same without Mackenzie crook being there there's something about the interplay between the two and it became somehow became stronger this time and all the cast are great and I really it really was just a great outing yeah we should start oh yes oh yeah uh, so welcome to episode three of as the actress said to the critic uh, I'm Nancy Carroll and I'm the actress and I'm Sarah Crompton and I'm the critic so I hope I didn't interrupt it in your mid-thought. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Always mid-thought, somewhere <laughs> or another. And um, we thought we did manage to go to one thing together this week, which was um, the 47th at the Old Vic, which is a new play by Mike Bartlett, which uh, features a lot of real people, and um, particularly Donald Trump and um, uh, Kamala Harris and... Trump family. And we thought that was kind of a good starting point for talking about what it's like to play a real person and particularly a a real person who is alive. Yeah. Which you, Nancy, have done in The Crown. Yeah, I've done it a couple of times on stage. And I think it's, it's a really interesting thing. We were talking earlier about the nature of playing characters from history, uh, whose story is being written for the first time. 
as opposed to characters who are really, really present in people's minds at the moment, which of course Trump is, and how tricky that must be. And also the nature of telling a story that is so fresh, whether audiences are ready to laugh at it or think about it in a completely different way and and that how important theatre is in that way, that it will open up conversations um, that, that, you know, are quite difficult in any other forum to, to start because there's such sensitivity around Trump and what he started and the rise of the right and particularly today with all the stuff that's been leaked about uh, the anti-abortion movement in America and how... Unbelievable judgment yeah. having been yeah against Trump you know and so Wade. what he represents is still quite hot um and yet having said that Bertie does such a beautiful job yeah so Bertie Carville does do the most extraordinary um he kind of incarnates Trump doesn't he I yeah. mean he looks uncannily like him given how little in real life Bertie Carville the actor does look like Trump yeah. so I mean he's skinny and dark and um and in this, he is blonde and orange. Yeah. <laughs> and he's got jowls. He's been tangled. And a stomach. Yeah. And, you know, there is an enormous uh, amount of sort of makeup that goes on there. Um, but what is interesting, I did a, uh, I was lucky enough to be asked to do um, a question and answer as part of the old Vic's Voices Off series um, on last Monday and um, interviewed Bertie Carville and um, Tamara Tooney, who plays uh, Kamala, and um, also Lydia Wilson, who plays Ivanka rather brilliantly. Yeah, they're all brilliant. Sort of walking handbag. (laughs) Um, And um, Bertie was really interesting in that because he said that, I said, I asked him, which I think is the journalistic question, do you feel more like Trump as you put the makeup on? And it's a sort of long process, sort of four-hour process. And he said... In a funny way, he didn't. He felt, in a strange way, the more he looked like Trump, the more he had to hold on to the idea of what he felt inside of playing this character called Trump. Because obviously he isn't playing Trump. He's playing a character called Trump. And um, that the worst place for an actor to to look, in a sense, is in a mirror, that what you're trying to do is look inside. And I thought that was interesting. He said... He'd quite like it if um, Trump came to see the play because, <laughs> because then it would make it clear that it is a character. Yeah. And not Trump himself. But that's, what I, that's what's so brilliant, I think, about Mike Bartlett's... I'm not sure if it's entirely iambic pentameter, but, you know, his rhythms, and Bertie's so observant of the rhythms of, of Bartlett's language, it's so clearly not... And a direct impersonation. And what he does is so effortless and beautiful, actually. It's sort of seamless. And he he does it with, with such joy and um, assurance. And you just lose yourself in what he does. And actually, towards the end, when you see an anger um, rising out of, of Trump, again, you know, it's, it's very much a performance. And, and, you know, what he takes from Lear and uses that as a sort of the formula for the play. And even that first scene, you know, asking yeah, his three like kids, Richard, yeah. you know, tell me how much you love me. And, and even Ivanka says nothing, my Lord, pretty much. Um, and he doesn't say nothing will come of nothing, but it it, it is almost that. Um, and so it's so self-consciously emulating Leah that it, it it's, 
you're able to, it's almost like you're given permission to watch it. It's not, I think if you were trying to tell stories, I mean, that was that's the difference with The Crown, I think, in, in so many ways, is that, and where offence has been caused as they've gone along, as they've got closer and closer to modern history, um, that there are people, you know, the, the minute you start to put together scenes, you know, behind closed doors and you think, well, this is some kind of version of what we believed happened. That's when it it gets a bit tricky. So who did you play in The Crown? Who's so it? I Tell played... Tell character um, you played. Uh, Lady Anglen Connor, who is very much alive and extraordinary. And um, I met her, actually, and then read her book, um, which is brilliant, Lady in Waiting. And she's a brilliant writer and an extraordinary woman. And um, what I got out of meeting her, apart from sort of hearing her stories and how open she was about her marriage to Colin Tennant, who was uh, Lord Glenconner, who bought Mustique when it was sort of wild Shrubland and then turned it into the great uh, Caribbean holiday destination that it still is. So that in itself is an extraordinary life adventure. But you add into all the other stuff about Hokum and her life growing up as a, even before she was a debutante, straight after the war, they didn't have any money. And so she went on the road as a travelling salesperson selling the pottery that her mother's um, local pottery company had made, which still is one of the most popular small businesses, small ceramic businesses, I think, in the country. Um, I mean, just amazing, amazing family for so many different reasons. But what I got from meeting her, which she was quite, um, what's the word, um, she wanted to stress the importance of uh, her friendship with Princess Margaret right. and and how important um, a journey she went on with her. You know, things like when their eldest son had AIDS and they went to the London Lighthouse when he was dying, effectively. And it was years before Lady Diana had gone and many of their friends had, you know, either momentarily or in the long term turn their back on them because there was a lot of controversy around AIDS and whether or not it, even touching somebody with HIV at that point was still, people weren't sure if that was contagious. There was a lot of fear around it at that point. It was really early on. But Princess Margaret had gone mm. to the London Lighthouse and always made a point of hugging everybody and talking to everybody. And, you know, the press had such a, a strong take on her spending of, money and and you know that she was the party girl and her affair and her marriage and the nature of the way that she lived her life as opposed to her sister and what um Anglin Connor wanted to push was that actually she was an incredibly bright woman yeah you know and really you know really missed out on a proper education and that you know, that she did so much good work and that she was an incredibly loyal, brilliant woman um, right through their entire life. And and so I think what I took from it and I think what Helena Bonham Carter was interested in, you know, in our, that tiny bit of that massive, sprawling, epic drama that yeah. The Crown is, um, was that, that it was a real friendship. Yeah. It was a real friendship and she wanted that res mutual respect and um, 
that sort of care that they yeah. both took of each other to be in that story. And it does come over. I, I, I mean, I do think, I mean, obviously I was looking out for you because I knew you'd done it and, and, and I knew you hadn't got that many scenes. But actually it is true that the the moments of their their interaction as two women, which are kind of fleeting in, in, in the actual eventual cut, but are they are real and they do come over as, as kind of genuine. And I think one of the interesting things about The Crown on TV it's so interesting to me that so often TV and film um, does use real people. You know, basically the way to win an Oscar is to play a real person. Yeah. Um, and, and yet, and it has a different effect in some ways than it does in the theatre. I've thought about this a lot with, you know, having watched the 47th. Um, but also when you look up, I, so in, in preparation for this conversation, I sort of Googled, you know, plays starring real people or yeah. plays about real people. And, and Richard III comes up, you know, and you think, well, fair enough. Yeah, you know, yeah. He was real, but you've gone kind of down the line. Um, but it's interesting with The Crown that it is, people have, have got really worked up that somehow... It is real in a way that they they don't think going to the old Vic and watching the 47th or watching Richard III, that it is real. Yeah. There's a kind of funny confusion that comes in on screen. Well, there's a great tenacity, isn't there, around the royal family and they mean so much to so many people and they are extraordinary, you know, both for their, their privilege and the, the dynasty and, you know, the nature of how they've changed over the years and adapted to how this British community need them to be and... You know, and I, they are a fascinating story. I think, you know, there was a lot of controversy around the time that we were doing the press for Series 4 around um, Prince Charles and Lady Diana and that story. And the thing that I said, and again, you know, one cog in the tiny, tiny sort of mechanics of it all, um, was that there you're never... Uh, it all, you know, it's always a dramatisation and... Something of that size, it's it's through the prism of the, the researchers and then Peter Morgan and then the directors and then the actors and then the audience itself. So by the time it actually comes into your living room, it's so far from the original story. What I think is interesting about the theatrical version, and, and um, I thought about this a lot because, so about theatrical versions of reality as opposed to... Um, screen, is that if you take The Crown, Mike Bartlett's previous um, blank verse modern history play, yeah. a modern fantasy play, really, if you want, was um, King Charles III, which did this um, astonishing thing of imagining a time when Charles has ascended the throne and when he actually through his kind of goodness and through his desire to make things right for everybody, yeah. gets himself into a pickle. Yeah. And there's kind of an abdication crisis. And Bartlett put all these people on stage, um, including Lydia uh, Wilson, who played Kate Middleton. Yeah. And set up a completely alternative version of both history and the royal family. But it had just enough kind of absolute truth in it yeah. that you recognised them as the members of the royal family and yeah. I said to Lydia when I was interviewing her on stage the other night I always think about that play now when I see Prince Charles or Prince Harry because many of the sort of character traits that 
he identified and focused on, you know, including sort of Charles's agonising over things. Charles was um, Tim Pickett-Smith, yeah, you know, yeah. late and very great. He was absolutely wonderful. Didn't look like Charles, sounded like him. Certainly behaved as you imagined he could. Yeah. And the wonderful thing that has always stuck with me and that I think of every time I look at Kate Middleton was the idea that Kate this very sweet and lovely person is really the power behind the throne. And oh, really? It is kind of the, not exactly the lady went first, but certainly the kind of arch manipulator of everything that happens in the royal family. Wow. And that ultimately it will be her triumph. And that is the brilliant thing about the stage, that you can have a, 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 a fantasy, you can have a sort of an imagination about what might happen that I don't think you would really get. I think it would be very hard to do that on screen because effectively the, the contract that, you know, you, you make on screen is that it's a real deal. You know, they're telling a real story. Whereas I, I, I think that is the interesting thing. I think that is why The Crown has been slightly problematic because it's kind of do believe it in I wonder, different ways. I wonder if it's because it's in your living room. I think maybe the act of leaving your house and going into town or wherever it is at the theatre is that you're going to see the show at, you know, you you you're you're sort of taking out the contract yeah. with yourself and with the with the theatre company making the piece that I I make this leap I I you know I suspend my disbelief and I'm you know I'm coming to you for a good time whereas in the comfort of your own home you have a relationship with people and with shows and particularly long running shows. And so there's a sort of, again, a, a tenacity or a proprietorial nature of, no, 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 that's not how the story goes. Now, come on, we all love the Queen, don't do the Queen down. And maybe also because it was a futuristic uh, Prince yes. Charles. Again, there's, you're, there's an allowance of, of um, all right, you can have this little bit of fantasy. But because this is history and also recent history, there's a... And people, and also the nature of the way that Lady Diana passed away is still so tragic. And again, it, you know, the hounding of the press and the whole dialogue around that has not been solved. I think it's also, though, I do think it's about form. So when I, um, the reason I like the 47th, uh, very much. I had reservations about it, but I did like it because of one scene, which is a scene between Trump and uh, Kamala effectively examining the nature of democracy yeah, and revealing, because Trump is given all the best lines, revealing how fragile democracy is against a determined assault upon it. And I think what I feel about theatre, one of the, the reasons I like theatre that does deal with real events, even in a kind of um, sideways manner, is that it gives you um, a new context in which to think of things and somehow makes things kind of vivid in a way that I think it would be I don't know I, I find I get less from screen so when I was thinking about plays I've seen about real events real people there was um also at the old Vic Audley um uh Lucy Preble who um I, I admire very much did um a play called A Very Expensive Poison which is about the killing of Litvinenko. And again, when I think about the news now and, um, you know, what's happening uh, in Russia and with all that we have learned from Luke Harding and other authors about, you know, Russia's actions um, in the West, 
it's that play which yeah. had huge inflatable puppets and a lot of unreality in it that I find I go back to as a touching point. And I'm I'm really interested in that. And also, you, I, recently I saw um, the James Graham play, The Best of Enemies, which is based on a very famous real-life television debate between Gore Vidal and um, William Buckley. Yeah. Um, and Buckley was this famous right-wing commentator borderline racist, certainly controversial, very, very sort of um, unpalatable to the liberal left. What the the young Vic did in, in the production was, though they cast Charles Edwards as Gore Vidal, who, you know, at some levels you couldn't suspend disbelief and think, you know, Gore Vidal, Charles Edwards, not too far apart. As Buckley, they cast David Harewood, who is a black actor yeah, and because brilliant. and and you just couldn't do that on screen I mean you could not ask audiences to suspend that much disbelief whereas in the theatre it was like a kind of challenge it was so brilliant and it made you listen to what Buckley said I think a lot of audiences would have had difficulty with Buckley but it somehow just oh shifted the balance of the whole thing yeah. and David did this kind of absolutely brilliant vocal impersonation of him. So it was still an impersonation, but it had got something else in it that I I think, well, I say it was deliberate. I presume it was deliberate. It was certainly brilliant. And yeah. I thought that was interesting. And that that's about how theatre makes you look at things differently. And you did David Hare's The Moderate Soprano, which is doing, it's not the same as that. It's not. But no. again, it's bringing a sort of slightly less well-known figure. Perhaps it would be useful to say to people who didn't see it uh, what exactly the moderate soprano was about the very few people who didn't <laughs> see it obviously um no it was uh, it was called the moderate soprano because actually john christie who founded the glyndebourne opera festival in sussex in 1934 referred to his wife as a moderate soprano which sounds a little bit demeaning but what he meant was it was to do with tombra it's not tambra It's not a word that I use on a regular basis. Um, But, you know, and so he was referring to the strength of her voice. But actually, the reason that David wanted to write the story is because it it was an extraordinary one. So he went to uh, Fritz Busch, who, uh, I'm probably saying that wrong as well, who was a a conductor uh, in the 30s working in Europe, an extraordinary man who had very, very recently um, been... um, sort of pinpointed by the Nazis as being a bit of a threat, that he wasn't prepared to not employ Jews in his orchestra. So they said, if you play the game, we will give you... um, God, I can't remember the name of it. The, the where they do the big ring cycles, the Wagner um, uh, Bayreuth. Opera House. Yes, Bayreuth, exactly, which had been his great dream. And when he said he wasn't prepared to not employ musicians that he thought were brilliant for and right for the job he then had to get out pretty quickly and so he escaped to Amsterdam and Karl Ebert and Rudolf Bing had similar stories that they were very very unpopular um, with the rise of Hitler's government and so they escaped he John Christie John Christie who uh, lived in Glyndebourne that was his ancestral home was desperate 
to build and was building an opera house in his garden and wanted people to help him start this festival with his wife. Um, and was it to allow her to to perform or was she getting work anyway? She had work and, and did sing. I mean, she was an extraordinary woman. And actually, the more I learned about her, I, I, I felt it was really, really important what David was doing because not only was he telling the story about quite an, an interesting and extraordinary, miraculous, actually, labour of love, which was to build an opera house in a garden and then actually turn it into a sort of global phenomenon. Um, but that also it was for love of his wife and for the love of opera and that it was a real reaction to the First World War that, like so many people uh, after the war, they'd seen such tragedy and loss they wanted to fill their lives with the things that made them happy. A lot, I, I've heard a few stories about people who sort of move out of cities and everything else because they just need to be at the mercy of the elements and nature, having seen man destroy and destruct uh, across Europe. So he, David thought the two elements of this story were that Audrey Mildmay was such a fascinating woman. Not only did she build the Glyndebourne Opera Festival with her husband. She also started the Edinburgh Festival. It was her idea. Oh, and she really? and I didn't Bing, know that at all. Yeah, yeah. She and Bing uh, were, um, I think, during the end of the war, maybe the, were doing a certain amount of touring. This is the Second World War. Touring opera, because, of course, a lot of the theatres were closed, ended up a few times in Edinburgh. And she thought, actually, what would be brilliant is to have a dramatic festival based in this city because there are so many spaces and there's such an audience here. And and it was Bing with her that, that then started it. Bing went on to run it. By this stage, she was really, really ill. And there's a great story uh, uh, around... Mild May. And again, this is, you know, what's so fascinating about playing these people and particularly unsung heroes is that you then start hearing stories about them. And even after I had played her the first time and, and I think in the, fir the first instance when we were in Hampstead, a brilliant woman came to me, waited for me uh, after the show and said, I have something for you. I actually run a secondhand music uh, shop, you know, actual scores. Yeah. This was Mild May's, this was her signature. These oh. were her songs. So they had a number. Of, so when you audition for things, you have a number of pieces. You have a number of pieces that you sing and you have in your repertoire for auditions and stuff. And it had it, it was a pile of music scores and they'd all been signed, Audrey Mild May at the top. And I just wow. found that incredibly That's moving. Fabulous. Do you feel when 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 you're playing somebody who is, um, you know, has had a, you know, a mark on History has, has um, you know, made, um, yeah, is a real person. Do you feel a sense of responsibility? Because taking it back to the beginning, I, I remember when, so when I did my Q&A, Tamara Tooney, who, uh, you know, is the only American member of the cast. Yeah. And who had um, met Kamala Harris as part of a, 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 a kind of big thing. She hadn't met her personally, but she'd met her as a Zoom inspirational session. Yes. Felt she did have this sense, she said, of feeling the kind of weight of responsibility on her that you had. She had to not let her down in some way. And do, do you do you think that is true particularly when you're playing real people or do you think that's just true of actors generally that they don't want to let the character down 
Well, I think, you know, it's why I was talking about Lady Anglen Connor's uh, friendship with Princess Margaret, that as a focus point, that's really useful rather than going, well, how did she walk? How did she talk? How did she hold herself? And there was the brilliant Amy Roberts put together a wardrobe. She was the uh, designer, costume designer on The Crown, um, is the costume designer on The Crown. And, and, you know, it's about essence and celebration. And I think if you're playing a controversial character, you know, you don't want to do a direct impersonation because, you know, you're not standing in front of them and it's not shadow play in that way. What you want is to create a cocktail of the intention of the writer and essence of personality and gestures and stuff that you you're indicating to an audience who you're representing but ultimately you're telling somebody else's story and you know there was very little footage of Malmé I heard her on um, a record player singing and I could see what it was that he meant by moderate soprano I mean she did have a beautiful voice you know but again you know Rog playing John Christie you know there is footage of him and he had that very sort of far back sort of ancestral um, strength of self-belief and confidence which you you sort of want to put in but again he wasn't doing a direct impersonation he did have to wear a fat suit because I think John Christie had had a bit of a belly Um, but you know it's really interesting and I think what Bertie does Again, it's not a direct impersonation, no. but you know exactly who you're watching. Yeah. But because he he's observing the blank verse and because he is so clever, you know, as is Lydia Wilson, all of them, they're just, they're, there's an essence. There's an essence and appreciation. And I think that comes from respect, ultimately. Whatever you think about them politically, they have a power in people's minds and, and within the political spectrum of the moment. And I... All of that, you know, you just, you take on board and you think, what is useful? What tells the story? What can I achieve? What what won't be an obstacle to me playing this, but actually will be the sort of lubrication, as it were? And, and Bertie does that brilliantly. The other thing he said in the Q&A, which is fascinating to me, is that, as and which uh, perfectly rounds up an idea of an actress talking to a critic, yeah. is that um, his dad was um, a newspaper man, which right. I didn't know. I and know, I think actually yeah. his granddad is as well. I, I think two generations of his family are. And I so I'd asked him a question of whether he had to be neutral in his attitude to Trump yeah. in order to be able to play him. And indeed, you know, since he's also played um, Rupert Murdoch, yeah, whether yeah. He, uh, he had in, in James Graham's Inc., if he had to be neutral again there. Um, and he said this really interesting thing. He said that he didn't think it was a question of neutrality because you can't be, you know, you have views. Everybody has a views yeah. all the time about anybody um they're playing who is real but what you had to strive for was a kind of what journalists are meant to strive for which is a kind of objectivity yeah to just say that you're um taking somebody without judgment and that you're looking at not in fact only the real Trump but very much what you're saying you're looking at the words on the page this character that has been presented to you Mike Bartlett's Trump, and you're looking at them in the same kind of objective way yeah, that a yeah. journalist should be looking at a story or a play or anything. Yeah. I think that's, I thought that was a really interesting thing that he said. I also think it is a valuable lesson. I mean, I, I think, you know, going really large to to pull things together, at the, I, I feel that one of the things that, um, certainly in my time as a journalist, that has been lost is the idea that 
that you 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 really really do strive to be objective and not to be um yeah, just not to be judgmental and to try to establish the facts. And you do that partly by finding the facts, yeah. but partly by acts of empathy of trying to see the world from um, the other side, you know, yeah. trying to, to look at it both ways and then present what the results of your investigations are. That was very much what I grew up with um, as a journalist and uh, and still do at some levels try to use as a critic. I try to go into every thing that I'm going to see with with a, a setting aside preconceptions, setting aside as far as I can. I know I'll have some, yeah. but just say, go on, you know, show me. And I think that is why, you know, that is kind of one of the lessons that I have learned about being a journalist. And it is one of the reasons I like going to the theatre yeah. because, you know, it does show me. It shows me, you know, historical things. It shows me things I didn't know. It makes me think about things. It gives me images yeah. above all with which to deal with the rest of my life, as I say, you know. Although, you know, what's so brilliant about it ultimately is they are you know, dynastic stories. They are family stories and they're universal stories because of that. So, you know, whether it's Lear or Trump or Murdoch, his relationship to his wife, to his employees, to his children, they're universal and fascinating stories. So, you know, you you watch the way that the, the dysfunction plays out in the way that he treats his children. And that's fascinating to us because we are, for the most part, all members of fairly sprawling families and we all have our own you know, history and dysfunction and healing or not or whatever, you know, across the board. And so they are human stories. And so, yes, you're playing Trump, but you're also playing a dad and you're also playing a husband and you're also playing a very ambitious man who hasn't always had it his way and certainly has a fairly rubbish relationship with his own father who seemed to have a very rubbish relationship with his father before that. And so what the level of dysfunction that's passed on between generations. And so it's not even about politics in the end. They are human stories. And so I think, you know, from what Bertie's saying and my very limited experience is you look for the things that you recognise and that people will be able to relate to. You know, and so when Rog and I played Marm, May and Christy, we were we were also just trying to create a marriage on stage that was believable and was extraordinary for ver- for many, many reasons in the way that many marriages are and go through all sorts of echelons of hell, you know, and then come out the other side and, and realise that, oh, my gosh, we've just spent 50 years together and I can't imagine life without you. And I think that, you know, however extraordinary the the detail of of Bertie's performance and Lydia's performance and um you know and all the performances in that show of the kids you know I thought that whole family setup yeah, was yeah. so beautifully pitched you know that that ultimately you want the audience to be able to relate to you just on a very normal level and the detail is on top of that is is the boon of that performer really yeah yeah and I think that's right. I mean, we might at um, a subsequent podcast talk about the fact that there are only, everybody says there's only five stories or whatever. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, that there is some truth and it's a different gloss on it. But anyhow, those are our thoughts on um, a week in theatre prompted by going to see Mike Butler's 47th and bringing in all our different views yeah. as a critic. And an actress. So thank you for listening. See you soon. <laughs>